This is episode 79 of The New Disruptors, T-0 with Gary Chow. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. podcast is supported in part by Cards Against Humanity, which is helping to underwrite our new indie ads, inexpensive short advertisements designed for independent artists, makers, programmers, and others. You can find out more about these ads by going to newdisrupt.org and clicking on the indie ads link at left. So thanks to Cards Against Humanity, which just launched a site where you can buy directly from them, including their bigger blacker box and their 2012 and 2013 holiday packs, the profits from which are donated to charity. Go to cardsagainsthumanity.com. Thanks to this week's indie advertisers, the Velocity app for faster reading, Ensembles, a core data sync framework, Games by Playdate, an indie tabletop game development studio supporting their second game, Pack the Pack, the Sparkle Mac app for painless website creation, the Cotton Bureau, enablers of well-designed screen-printed shirts, and Promote, a web service for indie game developers. You'll hear more about them later in this episode. Thanks also to our direct listener patrons, Alex Bond, Rooney Oakland, and Andy Bayo for supporting us through Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can visit us there at patreon.com new disruptors to back this podcast for as little as one dollar a month at higher levels we'll thank you on the air like this and send you mugs and t-shirts welcome to the new disruptors a podcast that says if you fund it build it and ship it they will come Gary Chow has launched Orbital Boot Camp. It's intended to accelerate people's product ideas into reality in a 12-week intensive session. He knows for startups from his work at Union Square Ventures Network and the product sessions, but his particular interest is making sure that people with traditionally fewer opportunities are included. Gary, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Glenn. It is such a pleasure. <laughs> I saw the announcement of this, uh, and I thought, oh, my, this is like the apotheosis of what this program is about, is trying to help people get their hands around what it is to build this sort of business and, and what they need to know. Um, I know, you know, I was saying in the introduction, I know you have now many years of working with startups and trying to help people you know, package what they're doing into something and learn all the skills. But how did this idea come out of it? I mean, have you been shaping this idea across different projects for, uh, you know, across the last several years? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I, so I used to work at a venture capital firm, as you mentioned, and I started moonlighting uh, one year. So one year, my colleague, Christina Cassiopo, who was an analyst at the firm at the time, we both started teaching a course at the School of Visual Arts. In their, they have a two-year master's in interaction design program. And I had met the chair of the program through a mutual friend. And she was interested in understanding, you know, how can you help the students of a design program, especially, you know, kind of a graduate program where there are very clear routes ahead of them, start to understand what's emerging. And so that fit very well with a lot of what Union Square Ventures invested in, in terms of, you know, they were the first institutional investors in, in Twitter and Etsy and Kickstarter. And, and those are just ex- a few examples of emerging networks that are enabling independent creators to kind of do their thing. And that felt like an interesting kind of theme to explore with a bunch of designers. Um, and that's really where the course kind of began. 
No, and there's a lot of interesting programs. I mean, I know they're all over the place, but New York seems to have them, like the uh, like the Tisch School and so forth. There's a lot of ways where um, you bring design and uh, development and different kinds of thinking together to do something practical that often requires material knowledge or product knowledge to make it happen. Yeah, and you know the thing that's really unique about the program is that the students. Um, so m- the class that I teach at SVA is called Entrepreneurial Design, and um, I like to describe it much more like a reality TV game show because <laughs> we don't actually teach any skills in the class. The students are learning skills in um, they're learning physical computing, they're learning prototyping, they're learning how to tell um, narratives using video and constructing their own kind of design fictions, and and then they just show up to my class and they have all these. Skills Skills. And so the, the entrepreneurial design classes is rooted in, um, you know, these little challenges that we give students. So uh, they have to post something original on Twitter and get 20 retweets. Uh, they have to find someone in their network that they've always wanted to meet and get an introduction and meet them. And, and you know, they have to take $50 and outsource it to a labor network of their choice. And these are all about trying to help them understand how to navigate this new world of networks. But then the big challenge is they have to make $1,000 by the end of the semester using the Internet they can't rent their bedroom out and they can't do time-based labor. And they're confronted with these constraints that then set them on this path of making something and then learning about themselves in, 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 like through the process of doing that. And that's, that's fairly unique, I think, still. That's totally wonderful, right? It's the best aspects of reality TV is you have to do something real, but you set a challenge. Uh, I, I'm a big fan. Well, I haven't watched it, I should say, for years, but I watched seasons of Project Runway. And uh, I was impressed by it because I have a, a background in graphic design, and I felt like Tim Gunn and the whole approach was much more like what I did as an undergraduate in the design program, and I know graduate students did as well, than it was a reality show. I was like, all right, yeah, I know these people are, you know, there's this commercial thing and whatever, but I thought the challenges they got, even though they were sometimes ridiculous were actually really good experiments in the combination of of aesthetics production and commercialization and i think that's what it is which is that when you know so much of learning today is really described as i think or falls under instructional learning which is in a perfect vacuum if you do x and if you do b you know then you'll get z or something and you know the real world is fraught with so much you know craziness and so many different factors and variables that get thrown at you and you know as a designer the worst thing you can do is to to kind of learn in a vacuum you know where it's it's more about can you get comfortable navigating uncertainty you know can you get comfortable navigating the fact that you don't really have control over all of the variables that come into play. You know, Twitter is actually the best example of that, right? The, the at reply, the retweet, and the hashtag, those were all emergent behaviors that came from the user base. And then only then and only then did the company actually uh, productize them after they took hold. And then that actually turned into Twitter's business model, you know, promoted treats, promoted trends, and promoted accounts. That all was emergent behavior that didn't necessarily exist, you know, at the beginning. And but the thing that the Twitter founders were great at is just letting that emerge and kind of seeing what happens and then, and then reacting in the right way. Um, and it's like surfing. I think like Etsy has a great story there too. Like, I mean, it's funny because Kickstarter. I mean, Twitter has a has a winding path because they had no idea whether there would be any monetization, but they could see the. Uh, I mean, they figured there would have to be at some point because of the scale. But the scale was off the charts when it really started a hockey stick. But you look at something like, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, two other uh, 
companies earlier that were early stage funded by the, the firm you worked at. Both Etsy and Kickstarter, the core of what they are now was in their founding, and they've been able to weirdly stay ridiculously true to it, but they've had to course correct over time because they had to balance the the issues of scale and participation with what aligned with the community they serve uh, serves interest so that they didn't get so far out of whack by pursuing a vision that turned out not to align with what they should be doing. And it seems like they've charted that very well, both companies. You know, I think that there's, I think that, you know, and I fell into this when I was, um, you know, so I used to work as a product manager at, um, at some, at a few startups and, you know, the, the danger that you fall into as a product manager. So first of all, I'm, I'm a self proclaimed control addict, right? <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're not a PM unless you like to control how everything gets done. And, but the danger is when you are talking about pixels and bits and you are able to wield them, it, for, it causes you to, or at least causes some people, or at least myself, to feel like you have more control over the outcome than you really do. And the truth is, you know, we have no control over anything. And I think that if you approach what you're building from the perspective of having a set of key principles and you know why those principles exist and why you believe in them, then the second half is just trying to negotiate those principles as your environment adapts and as your environment grows and changes. And that is a very different, I think, approach than what a lot of people take and what I used to take, which was more about... I want this outcome. I will design this outcome and, and, you know, why are people not behaving in the way that I expected them to? And, and, and that is, you know, that's, it's part of like growing up and realizing just what life is about too. But, uh, you know, I think that that is a, a much healthier way to approach building things. And the only way to learn that is to, to be confronted with it, right? Because the, the challenges are less about learning actual skills and more about negotiating what your own tendencies are. Like, I, I think that we're largely the best saboteurs of our own happiness. And it, you have to kind of start to understand why you behave in a certain way. And, oh, I'm, I'm doing that thing again. Okay, I should, you know, set up a system so it minimizes the effect of me always fall, lapsing into that thing that I do. Um, That's a brilliant observation that we're saboteurs of our own happiness. That should be a band name. <laughs> but, it's, but, it, but it's true. And then people, people get stuck on ideas and, and they don't always reach out of the space in which they're in to get advice from folks who might be able to help them. I mean, I know it's one of the common... Uh, pieces of business advice is when you're starting something up, you should find trusted friends and colleagues, people who, or you go out and you seek mentors and you, and so many people I know have gone outside of their comfort zone and talk to people that they can't imagine would give them time. And those people, many of them will give them time. They're eager to be asked. They're eager to share their expertise and time if they, if they have it. But um, this seems like you're the orbital boot camp is i don't want to say you're codifying it but it clearly you're taking a lot of the lessons you've learned in all these varied things including the the more recent teaching and are giving people a framework into which to you know gather this information hear from people develop mentoring and and work through so that they aren't stuck in their own rut wondering how to get out of it you know, it's 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 funny. I I never thought I would become a teacher. That was not an outcome that I really foresaw. And um, you know, I, and, and I think actually I, I fought it for a while until I started to realize that actually teaching is you know, and and the benefit that I get out of it is the learning that comes from that, right? Like teaching is probably one of the best ways to continue to learn. And and learning to learn is one of the hardest things to do once you kind of leave the institution 
or the um, the academy or wherever it is that you come from. And you know, in in my students that I've taught, you know, I you know I see all of the flaws in myself too, right? And and I think that when you have someone who is 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 challenging you, but it's outside of yourself. It somehow makes it so much easier for you to navigate what, you know, what thing, what the right thing to do is, or what the you know helpful thing is to think about. But it has to be somebody else, not us. You know, it's it's like you can't give yourself advice. Um, That's the danger of being an autodidact, which which I have faced in my life, and it's it's both wonderful because you feel like you can teach yourself anything. I mean, I think it's a I think it's a brain type, not a learned thing. <laughs> Some people only want to teach themselves, and I'm. <laughs> afraid I'm one of those. And, uh, but it means that you limit yourself too, because if it's something you can't teach yourself unless you're willing to really stretch, then you've limited where you go. And I, I've certainly felt that at times. And I, I know, I know other people you're like, if you're anybody, you know, who's a quick study, it means they have that sort of brain, but that means they may not be as good at collaboration or they may not understand how to focus on one thing for a long time or and so forth. I, I'd say that you know the, what what I'm doing with Orbital is it's a huge risk in terms of uh, well I want to clarify risk because mm. I also don't I think that sometimes risk gets overloaded a bit but it's I'm definitely pushing myself to do something that I don't think I would have done um, had I not had the experience of of seeing what my students were able to do like that's oh, this is great. this is like a meta thing for you as well then it's like you're pushing yourself at the same time you're pushing other people. Oh, look, there's a good reason why, you know, I'm almost 40. There's a good reason why I didn't do something like this in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's because I could see all the flaws and all the challenges and all the reasons why things wouldn't work. And, um, you know, I was less willing to pursue something if I couldn't figure out every single nook and cranny and permutation before I jumped in. And, you know, there was a level of, comp- you know, there's a level of discomfort that I had with uncertainty that prevented me from fully taking the plunge on anything right and when you kind of see what you know people are able to accomplish when they push past themselves it's it's funny the uh the thousand dollar project is the thing that the the course at sva is is best known for but Mm. i actually think that the most of the value in the class is in the smaller assignments and you know one of my former students really kind of struggled with the thousand dollar project and and she really had a tough year but she was able to do you know some of the smaller assignments and a few years later after she graduated i caught up with her and she said you know gary i don't know if you know how i got my job but it was assignment number 2 in your class huh. you know I, I i found somebody who you know whose work i really liked uh they i saw that they weren't hiring i reached out and got a meeting with them and then i flew out to San Francisco and met with them and she met with the founder and by the end of the meeting she had a job offer and I was like oh my gosh you're, you went and did that that's amazing you know and that is really the core of the class and I think that's really what the core of what I hope people get out of the boot camp which is we are users of networks but we don't necessarily know how to wield them to for our own purposes, right? You know, just because you know how to like things and and on Facebook or reblog them on Twitter doesn't know that doesn't mean that you're necessarily using them in a manner that you know is is best for, uh, for your best interests. And you know, so that learning how to think that way is is a big shift, and that's kind of the core of it. 
Let's take a break so I can tell you about our indie sponsors. First up is Cotton Bureau. Cotton Bureau is a curated marketplace for buying and selling designer t-shirts. Here's how it works. You submit your artwork. If your design is approved, you get two weeks to promote your tea and sell as many shirts as possible. Cotton Bureau handles all the printing, credit card charging, shipping, inventory, and customer service. If you sell 12 or more shirts, your design goes to print. If you sell at least 25, you get paid. Cotton Bureau is used and loved by some of your favorite people on the internet, like TapBots, RealMac, Pacific Helm, Black Bar, and The Incomparable. They don't use direct-to-garment inkjet printers, just genuine screen printing right in their hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on the softest t-shirts around, which I can testify to. They're very soft. Cotton Bureau has never run a sale before, until now. On June 12th only, the first day this show airs, to celebrate its first birthday, every shirt on the site is $4 off. Go to CottonBureau.com. But if you've missed the sale and it's not yet June 19th, you can enter a special drawing for New Disruptors listeners. Reply to at Cotton Bureau on Twitter with the hashtag hash disrupt to be automatically entered for a chance to win a free Cotton Bureau shirt of your choice. Cotton Bureau will select five winners on Thursday, June 19th. Find Cotton Bureau at CottonBureau.com. Our next indie ad is from Velocity, the only speed reading app designed and developed exclusively for iOS 7. You can read your Instapaper, Pocket, or Readability queue at up to 1,000 words per minute. You can thank me later. Velocity, it's like 2x for text. Download the app at VelocityApp.com. That's VelocityApp.com. Next up is Ensembles. Want to add some sync to your core data app? Ensembles is the open source core data sync framework. It works with iCloud and Dropbox, and you can add support for other services in just a few hours. No more vendor lock-in. Ensembles is completely free, but support packages are available. You can learn more at ensembles.io. That's E-N-S-E-M-B-L-E-S dot I-O. And now back to the show. I also want to bring up something um, before we dive into some of the, the, the meat of what the course is going to be about. Uh, you know, you know um, that you're part of your requirements for this. You're looking for people. I mean, I'll list, the list here is you're looking for looking out for women and people of color underrepresented in technology, those working on civic, social, educational projects, and those with financial need. And this is partly for the uh, uh, the scholarships you're trying to uh, you want to offer. But we know. I mean, this has been. Gosh, I think this is one way in which Twitter, maybe Facebook to a lesser extent, but Twitter uh, does amplify voices that aren't heard because they find other voices that are the same. And so I think I am more critically aware in the last couple years of underrepresentation in technology and the impact it has, as well as, you know, harassment or simple, you know, people simply being shut out because they don't have the networks. This has become very, very clear, I think, to more people who are uh, outside any of those communities than has been true before. I think we've you could read about it and talk about it, but then you actually hear people's voices and they explain and they tell their stories. It seems significant that you want to make sure that people who are traditionally not part of this technological revolution taking advantage of this <laughs> are heard. Where where does that motivation come out for you? I mean, how are you? How did you come to this point and and want to help achieve this? You know, I I think. Um... You know, so I've I grew up in the Midwest, and you know, it was, it was one of a few Asian people in the town that I grew up in, and and I think that um, you know, my life has certainly not been nearly as as 
is uh, I don't want to suggest that my life has been horrible or anything by any means, but you do feel a little bit of the sense of being the other and being different. And I've seen stories that where it's just far, far worse and far more serious. And uh, so I've always been conscious of whether you feel like you are in the majority or not. In fact, I mean, I think it was a little bit weird for me to, to, to land at Union Square Ventures because it was the most prominent place where I'd worked. And all of a sudden, I had a lot more attention uh, than I had ever previously had in, in any other job or role. And so I've always been conscious of that. And, you know, I also believe that all this wonderful stuff that is emerging around networks and technology and software, you know, there's an access issue, not so much in terms of of the technical aspects of how easy it is to access things, but in, in the more softer, subtler things, right? Like if, if you, if it's not clear that you're going to walk into a space where you're welcome, you may be less likely to do so. You know, it, it, getting, I, I think one of the things I'm really happy about is that we got to kind of a 50-50 split between male and female applicants, whereas a week ago that wasn't the case. A week ago, I think that we were closer to 70-30. And, um, and so I did a little bit of just a little bit more out, directed outreach to try to make sure that we get more people in the funnel. And, and I think that is, you know, it, it's, it's about making sure that people are aware that these are places that are out there, but also trying to frame it so that we're just, you know, overabundantly clear that, this is a place that is respectful of uh, a diverse array of backgrounds and opinions and, and believes that you know, everyone should have a seat at the table and participating in that. I, I think there's an issue. You have there's two key points I think you raised already. Well, you know, one is deadlines, though, I should say, but the other is there's signaling and there's outreach. And I, I've discovered in my work uh, doing uh, conferences and publications and, and uh, you know, other kinds of things where I'm soliciting people that – the shorter the deadline, I certainly heard this from other conference organizers too. They've, they've definitely seen this. The shorter the deadline, the harder it is for women typically because if they're, if they have children or even if they're just in a couple, there's this societal preference in America at least that I think leads women to wait and ask more than men. Men will push the button and to say, I'm in. And women will try to make sure the schedule works for themselves, their partner, their family. And I think that is a, that's a social thing that I think men planning conferences don't always take account of. And that's, that's been an issue. And so by having a longer deadline, it can help bring in participation. The other is signaling. And I think, uh, or I should say there's two other things. The other is signaling. And I think you, you know, just in your presentation initially, it provided a space for people who are underrepresented, which includes women, but, you know, people of color and so forth, and even the financial issue, people who, you know, can't simply afford to do this. And by signaling that, you, you open the willingness. And then the, the final was that the fact that you did outreach, you said, this isn't going exactly as planned. Instead of saying, well, we did everything we could, you said, no, this isn't what we want. This isn't the goal we want. So we're going to figure out, I'm going to figure out what's wrong with it and try to adjust it without skewing things, but just to make it work the way I think it should. And, and uh, by doing so, it sounds like you got kind of exactly the, the outcome that you wanted from this. Yeah, which, which I'm honestly kind of surprised by, it, despite all of that, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, and it, I think that plays a little bit more to just the, the insecurity of, you know, if you, if you plant your flag here, is, is anyone going to show up? Like, like who's going to come to the party? And, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, I had to rush the timeline just because of logistics, but um, yeah, I was, I was a little worried that I wouldn't have, you know, a data set that showed that 
you know, there's broad interest and, and there's a need and, and that's all good. And, and so the problem I have now of trying to figure out how to plug the gap, it's a, it's a good problem to have. You know, I'd be much sadder if, there were, if I didn't get the results that I got. You know, I should say, we, now we're, we're well into the podcast, and I've sort of described a little bit in passing as of you what this is about, but I should say, I, I like the framework better. We, so we've talked about how we got here, but uh, uh, this is a boot camp, and can, can you explain a little bit about what the intent and structure of it's going to be? Because it seems like you defined a reasonably broad mission in a, uh, it's like it's both broad and narrow at the same time. You have a very specific kind of uh, a person and project you'd like to come, but it can encompass a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so there's, you know, there's a lot more to unpack here. So, um, you know, the, the first thing is that I think the first thing that makes this very different is that um, the purpose of coming into the program and your output and your focus is not about raising a round of financing. It's not about getting a lot of press. Um, you know, it's it's not really for that stage, right? You know, it, it's it's much it's much more focused on just the pure act of creation, which I think is just hard enough as is, right? Just just the process of making something is is hard enough. Why why try to add on anything else to that? And, and so it's very intently focused around that. And so for that reason, you know, the output of the program isn't necessarily a. a a demo day as much as it is a public talk on lessons learned. Mm. And the boot camp will take you through this process of coaching you and helping you get things out there into the world and helping you process and evaluate the feedback and helping you navigate whether to go left or to go right or to go straight. And, and then to also help you figure out what it is that you've learned and how do you, how do you synthesize what's happened so that you can figure out, you know, what is next. And, you know, you may leave the program you know, having launched 12 failed experiments. But that could be a success if you have actually taken something away from that and, and learned a huge lesson. Because then you can apply that to the next thing that you do and the next thing you do and the next thing that you do. The other thing is that I, I think it's really hard to know whether or not we want to work on something until we see what it is and until we see how it unfolds and until we see how people respond to it. And, you know, it's almost like the the more attached you are to things, the the less you're going to give it a chance to kind of realize itself. And, you know, I want people to make whatever they dream of without necessarily thinking about the outcome or the intent. So you may make something and decide that you're done with it, and that's totally fine, and that's totally good, and that's acceptable because you now can take your time and energy and direct that towards something else. You may make something and realize that it's best to be open-sourced or it's better sold to somebody else or it's really a great creative project that you should continue on Kickstarter or you know, maybe, maybe you have something where the appropriate sustainability model is to scale it in a high growth model. And great, I can help you with that too. But we don't put the cart before the horse and we focus purely just on helping you navigate the process of creation. Um, and so that's really what the program's about. It's a really interesting position because it's, it's not even pre-funding. It's sort of like a funding, like you're, you're, you're um, agnostic about what might happen next. But if, uh, I mean, so Y Combinator, which Paul Graham leads, and uh, he, he's one of the people that uh, a lot of the readings that you've got in the background for the project, obviously, because he's had an incredibly successful uh, run with his colleagues of producing an enormous number of interesting projects. But they're really a funding 
accelerator and and now we get to these stages where their companies are pre-funded and almost pre-pre-funded like you have an idea and someone gives you a, a small pile of money and it's very easy to get a modest pile of money and then a huge pile of money and the, the whole issue of pivoting because you don't have time to experiment everything has to move so fast it feels like by staking out this position it's not only before a funding position but it gives you the opportunity to include these social and like positive good programs that are never going to achieve. They might achieve scale and a billion people can be involved, but they don't have to be looking for venture funding or, or super acceleration. But it also takes the onus off that people have an opportunity to experiment in a way that the minute money comes in, you lose, no matter how great the investors are, no matter what program it is, the minute money comes in, you lose the flexibility of failure in the same way that you, had, you, you would have in this environment. I think so. I mean, I, I think you lose the ability to say that I'm done with it, you know, and, yeah. and sometimes the way we feel about some things or we can't really predict them, you know, it's just a feeling maybe, you know, or maybe it's something that you come back to, you know, and, and that happens in the business world too. You know, the, the iPad was actually the first product that they, the Apple had built and Steve Jobs realized, wait a second, we can make a phone with this. And so then they put the iPad on the shelf, <laughs> they went to make the, make the phone, and then they came back to that. And, you know, to have that luxury and that freedom to decide, you know, all of the decisions are made in the moment. And, you know, if you do take, a, you know, a round of funding, there are set expectations that go along with that. They may, they may lead you to not consider other options. And, you know, and it's just a tougher route, you know. I, I'm, I'm also not necessarily, uh, it's not that I'm pessimistic on funding. It's, right. I, I look at you know, I look at venture, venture capital like water. You know, water poorly applied will lead to disaster and ruin and typhoons and all sorts of things. But, you know, water appropriately applied leads to, you know, growth and, and life and important things too. It's just you don't want to, uh, you know, it's just really easy to get caught up in the rhetoric when so much of it is centered around, the validation of you and your worth and your time is based on the level of achievement you achieve in the kind of echo chamber of, you know, tech media and stuff like that. And, and so I, I kind of want to create a, a step back and think about this as a practice. And, you know, as technology becomes easier and easier to wield, I think there are two effects. One is that it starts to feel a little bit more like an art form in, in terms of building things based on your intuition. But then to the other point that you're raising, you know, as technology gets cheaper and cheaper, it starts to make possible the idea that you can pursue these other pursuits that are not completely commercial and actually make it sustainable. So, you know, I think all those things are on the table and really the fun part is trying to help people piece all of those things together and think about uh, uh, analogs of different ways to think about things that come from both the, the, the startup world and the venture world, um, you know, to these other sectors too. It seems like you're leaving a lot of tools on the table for people because they haven't had to pick one up and, and decide they need a hammer or a saw. They can actually – I also think you know we're in this wonderful position where between uh, – well, this podcast, like part of the foundation of this podcast was exploring how people are using new methods in funding, prototyping, manufacture, and distribution. And because those things have changed so much and even in the two years since this started, I'm seeing that. And so you know, funding is crowdfunding but lots of other models now. You know, Kickstarter is – is the big uh, gorilla in that one space, but there's lots of different things. But when I look at other stuff, it's like uh, 
prototyping, the fact that you can buy a cheap 3D printer and do real things with it and, and do them relatively quickly or uh, manufacture, uh, you can make l short runs of all kinds of stuff much more efficiently to test out ideas. And so in, in the server side, like we haven't even, I mean, that's kind of falls outside even of that rubric, but it maybe it falls in the funding or production side is that uh, I just, uh, you know, how to drop in my server bills for uh, Linode, just, um, you know, put SSDs in all of its virtual servers and I'm getting more performance for half the cost than I was a few weeks ago. So in the past, you would need to have a fully-fledged idea that you could take and get venture funding because you would need the $100,000, $500,000 million to build the molds or to you know, uh, hire the folks to build the electronic prototypes that would let you do whatever, or you had a $50,000 server bill in your fourth month and, and you were going to have to shut down. That those limitations, I know they're not gone, but they've fallen away from these early stages, which makes it feel like the money could recede further away as you can experiment really fully. I mean, your program's 12 weeks. It seems like people could accomplish a crazy amount in 12 weeks. Well, you know, they're still working on day jobs, though. Yes. So that, that, you know, the big question mark that I have is whether or not they're going to have the emotional energy left after mm -hmm. dealing with, you know, the, the tough day at the job, the tough client, you know, all of the things that tend to, to really kind of weigh us down to, to be able to come in and, and, and still make progress. And that's the hope, you know, so with the program, you get to work in the space. Uh, and actually, after the 12 weeks are over, you still have a month of being able to work at Orbital to basically process and think about what you've done and see what you want to go do next. Oh, yeah. And I should point out, I mean, this is on your side, of course, but the fact this is the Kickstarter's original offices that they expanded slowly into. I've been in there. They're really cool, weird space. It's exactly where you want startups to happen because it's, it's space that uh, people – don't feel strongly about it. It's not like this beautiful corporate gleaming perfection <laughs> steel case. It's like, no, it's a beat up, awesome old building that Kickstarter did really, really well until until they just blew out the number of people they could put into it. Man, I, I, I wish I could have steel case furniture. <laughs> I have IKEA chairs and No, but then you'd uh, care stuff. about it too much. There's a book I've cited on this podcast many times. There's Stuart Brand's book, How Buildings Learn. And this is the best book. I, you have to go read it now that I've told you because it's it'll change – it'll warp your mind is that spaces – less structured spaces produce more creativity because people aren't scared to use them in interesting ways. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I agree with that. I'm, I'm, I'm joking a little, a little bit, just from the perspective of someone who is now intimately familiar with what types of trash bins to get and exactly <laughs> what size trash bags will fit in those trash well, bins. That is fair um, but I do, you know, the thing that really attracted me to the space, obviously, there's the legacy, but it's you know, it's hard to find these imperfect spaces anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that space informs everything, right? It's, it's, the, it's our context. And, you know, I think the right, the right type of person will walk into these crazy, potentially dangerous staircases and, <laughs> and not be turned off by it because they kind of really appreciate and the feeling and the character behind it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's clearly, clearly a really, really special space, and I'm very fortunate to, to be here. Let me take another break to tell you about some of our other fantastic Indie Ads supporters. 
Thanks also to Games by Playdate. Games by Playdate is a uniquely transparent indie tabletop game development studio. They're proud to announce their second title, Pack the Pack, is headed to crowdfunding platforms now. Pack the Pack is one of the Cards Against Humanity 2013 tabletop deathmatch finalists, and it's a fast-paced, gem-matching game of inventory Tetris. You and friends race to fill your packs with all the best treasure and get back to town to secure the best prices for your ill-gotten gains. You can learn more about the game at packthepack.com. No hyphens, packthepack.com. And if you have great dreams for a modern website, but you dread the HTML and CSS, Sparkle is what you're looking for. Sparkle is a Mac app that lets you build a website visually with any design and no predefined template, just like a keynote presentation or a pages leaflet. Their customers tell them that Sparkle is what they've been waiting for for the last 10 years, that it's a godsend and even that it doesn't suck. Find Sparkle on the Mac App Store, or you can visit sparkle.cx. And finally, thanks to Promoter. Promoter is a web service for independent game developers that automatically tracks press mentions of your games. It's like Google Alerts, except that it actually works. It also lets you keep track of iOS promo codes and Steam keys, manage your press contacts, and get reminders for important festival submission deadlines. Sign up or extend your existing plan at promoterapp.com slash disrupt and get 10% off. That's promoterapp, with an R in there, dot com slash disrupt for your 10% discount. And now back to the show. Well, I should mention some more of the nitty gritty too, because I think it's it's interesting how you frame this all. Is you know, obviously, growing out of the the course that you taught and trying to turn this into something that's a that's like a more publicly available thing. But so it's thirty seven hundred and fifty dollars for twelve weeks of courses plus four weeks access after twenty four seven access to the space. So if someone works their job and they come in and they want to work twelve other hours a day and all weekend, <laughs> they'll have access to it. Are are you looking to? I mean, as you know, the applications you've gotten so far it looks like a mix of um you just i'll, I'll put in links uh, to the show notes too because by the time when we're talking a bit before the program starts but um, by the time this airs it'll be just before you you get started but um your the applications you got you know there's a fair amount of people involving uh, it's like over uh, almost uh, two-thirds are people who are, are going to be building something i know some percentage of that's going to be hardware are you going to try to make available devices and things inside there? Or is it really an intellectual space? Yeah. Um, sadly, I don't think I'm really well suited to, to support like having a CNC or a laser cutter right, or right. stuff like that. Luckily, though, you know, I think a lot of people are pretty good at finding those resources themselves. Um, some of them are graduates and alumni of, you know, programs actually like SVA. So SVA has a vis- it's, I think it's called the Visible Futures Lab and they've got everything there. And so when I taught it, when I when I teach the, the class I teach at SVA runs in the spring semester. So a lot of the students work on physical products and they have the facilities to go and do the prototyping and the iteration and to, and to, to use all of that. And then the class is really just more kind of the intellectual space of trying to assess where are you at, what do you need to do next and so on and so forth. So I think if someone wanted to work on a physical product here, they, they would have to be able to find their own kind of space to do all the hard work out of. 
but you're trying to find them a place where they could they could be doing some construction there they could be trying out prototypes but it's a place for them to work it's not home it's not a coffee shop it's not even a maker space it's a place where they can go and it's a space for them to think and work and have advice as well as take the uh, have the instruction during the the weekly instruction periods but I think the most important thing is actually just also the fact that you're going to be surrounded by other people mm. who, like you, are going through that same struggle, right? You, you, you're trying to, to give birth to something into the world, and you're confronting all the same issues that everyone else is confronting around managing and balancing and, and fighting against this and that. And, and that's valuable too, right? I think, I think, um, uh, I think a lot about this notion of self-sufficiency, and I think it's it's threefold. I think there's financial self-sufficiency, um, which is simply about covering your costs and having enough money to do the things that you need to do. There's emotional self-sufficiency, which is really about finding a community of people who kind of get you, right? You, like kind of your, you want to find your people. And then there's educational self-sufficiency, which is what we talked about earlier, which is how do you put yourself in a position where you can learn, you know, learn to learn. And, um, and that for me has been teaching and it might be, uh, something slightly different for somebody else, but I have the feeling that all three of those things can be very much catalyzed by space and space is a really powerful catalyst. And I think it can enable reactions to happen that would not otherwise be able to without it. And, uh, and you got a lot of people who bought in on this. You have 62 applications, um, by the deadline as we talked about well, the deadline passed before we talked, but, uh, you define really I think very clearly who you wanted, which was this is not an intro to what you might do with yourself uh, course. This is people who have the skills. I mean, you talked about that with the SVA course you taught, too, is people who have the skills already and they're trying to figure out how to put together what they would do and they would benefit from being able to get your expertise, the expertise of other people you bring in, this collegial environment and just time that they've paid for that they know is valuable in a space they can use. So 62 people, that sounds, that's a, that seems like a really great response. You, you said before the podcast, you were concerned, you weren't sure who was going to necessarily come through and, and what the response would be. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's the same thing that people go through when they launch a Kickstarter project, right? You, you can find all the reasons why you think no one's going to come and back your project, and that's what you tend to focus on. And and I, I think also I'm trying to be I'm trying to be somewhat intellectually honest with myself too. And and I think in order to approach it with no expectations, I think that means also that I'm creating room for myself to be pleasantly surprised when <laughs> when people do show up. So yeah, it's it's like a dinner party. And how many of the, of the sixty two did you get teams because you were willing to have people up to three people in a team? I think the way the numbers shook out, we got about nine to ten uh, teams of two. There might have been one team of three. Oh. I forget exactly. But mostly individuals. So that'll be interesting, too. You know, the one difference between this and the SVA class, you know, the, the grad students going into that program are opting into taking two years of their life and investing in a program and running through it with the same cohort. Uh, and that's a very considered... Uh, decision. You know, one of the, I think one of the reasons why I wasn't so sure about how this would turn out was I just wasn't sure how many people would be willing to step out of what they're doing, you know, add this on top of all the other things that they have going on in their lives. And could you actually build a group and a cohort that really feels like they're going to support each other? And so that's, that's kind of also what I've been looking out for. And I think, uh, I think there's, chances are there's probably a good collection in there somewhere. 
And furthering the goals that you had setting out, uh, the, the numbers you posted, you have 60% of people identify themselves as underrepresented in technology. We, we talked before, half the applicants are women. Uh, you've got a diverse kind of applicant, filmmakers, writers, educators, designers, artists, technologists. So it's not all, we're industrial designers, we want to be, and we want to make a thing. You've got people across the <laughs> field. And, but, but I think maybe most interestingly, uh, or very interestingly, 68% require financial assistance in order to attend. And I know setting out, you had, I think it was two scholars that were firmly lined up and with 62 people and the potential uh, you'd like to take as many as 45? I think I could easily take 45. Yeah. Um, so you've got, a, you've got a funding issue, but it seems to me, to be blunt, you're fairly well connected in the world. And I, I wonder what the response from other people has been if you've talked to about this, about trying to help underwrite uh, folks who fit all the parameters you've got here, exactly the kind of people you'd like to get involved in these fields. Are you hearing a positive response from people that you are trying to solicit to uh, to uh, bring in some more financial assistance? This is great. I'm so happy to be able to talk to you about this because like, this is literally what I've been thinking about this entire weekend. Mm. So, so this is like therapy for me. Um, <laughs> so um, I have been hesitant to make the ask uh, of a lot of people so far because you know, it was only until Friday that we had all the applications in, and I didn't want to kind of jump the gun, uh, so to speak. The other consideration is that I would really love to find a way to make the program self-sufficient uh, and sustainable without having to necessarily rely on pe generous people to write me a check and, and so on and so forth. Um, so I've been really kind of struggling with whether or not that is feasible in the short time frame, or maybe I uh, do something different. You know, I think if I had more time, I would love to help coach each of the individual people through the process of maybe crowdfunding their own tuition. Oh you know? my goodness, yeah. Um, you know, but that takes that's that's not an easy ask. That takes time to do, and for a lot of reasons, I want to get the program started by the 16th. Um, so that's one thing. The other idea I had was to maybe think about network effects around education. So, you know, back to the idea that this program is about launching and learning about that and learning about that process and, and then the output being kind of a public talk on lessons learned. Well, you know, maybe if you sponsor a student, then that student will agree to speak to whatever audience you would like them to speak to, whether it's an internal corporate audience, whether it is going to other schools, if you are a philanthropist and are connected to other kind of community organizations where they go and they tell their stories. And so I've been thinking about kind of creative ways of doing that. That said, I, I, the practical reality of it might be that I just need to ask a lot of people for their help for this time around just to get through getting all these people into the program and then seeing what happens after one turn of the cycle and then you know thinking being a little bit more thoughtful about incorporating the the funding aspect into the the next time if there is a next time that might be the practical reality but i think just long term just to boot this one off the get this one off the ground and but, you know, we're at this interesting, like, there's this interesting philanthropical point we're at, too, is do I talk to more companies that are interested in just saying, look, you know, uh, we, you know, sponsorship doesn't necessarily buy us anything or advertising. We have our own thing for that. But we want interesting things to happen. And so there are companies, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I'll call them out. MailChimp is one of them, certainly, because they, they've been involved in a lot and in, in being the catalyst for a lot of things, including putting uh, the Kickstarter project for the book that we did at the magazine. They put us over the top and kicked in because they, they like to make things happen. And I, I think 
like I don't want to make them sound like an easy touch because they're you know you need to give them a proposal. They have specific things and whatever, but they're they're not philanthropists in the more traditional sense of like uh, uh, you know Carnegie Foundation or or some of the newer ones. But they're um, they know that sometimes a very little bit of money can go a long way. And I feel like there are a lot of organizations like that right now. We're just like, Oh God, we want this to happen. So, you know, what, we, what reasonable size check can we write that makes this cool thing happen that has a network effect and a beneficial effect and stick our name on it somewhere, but we don't care. Like, so this seems like a great time to be trying to do what you're doing without feeling like you're, you know, you're digging deep into the cushions to make it happen. Well, you know, if you got more names, uh, I'm happy to write them all down. <laughs> <laughs> if you look, there's, there's some. If you look at the conferences, I mean, it's actually very interesting. The XOXO conference, the, um, the Brooklyn is a uh, Brooklyn builds. No, I've got the name of the wrong. It's, oh, uh, Brooklyn uh, Beta. Yeah, Brooklyn Beta. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a there's a bunch of interesting conferences that are. I mean, I would say like what you're doing in 12 weeks is uh, very intensive, and you're you know it's a course because people have all the access to it, and then there are programs and events uh, nearly impossible that uh, Rusty Meadows uh, uh, launched last year in New York that are like two day, one or two day or three day boot camps, which are super intensive, but they don't give you the longitudinal time. They get you going, and you know XOXO has been entirely inspirational to me. It's helped me push me along in the last couple of years, and the yeah, companies. Me too. Be, Oh, that's great. Oh, that's right. I mean, this is, you're another person I haven't met who's been at XOXO <laughs> because everyone there is doing something interesting is in the audience. The audience is as interesting as, as the speakers. But you look at the list of companies involved in those things and sure, they're getting a benefit out of it, but they are all the ones who want the kind of thing you're doing to, to happen. Yeah. You know, I, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a time. It's, you know, this is this is the perfect example of if I were to do wait until I could do everything perfectly, I would never do it. Like for example, we did you know as as we talked about the call for applications ran for two weeks, and um, I had a very tight timeline to get it out, and I had to cut off applications with a very short window, and I was a little bit concerned after the first week because you know I saw that you know when I tweeted it out. It was getting retweeted, but it was only getting retweeted by well, the, the vast majority of people retweeting it were personal connections of mine, mm. and I wasn't seeing it take hold beyond that as much, and so that was kind of a concern. But you know, as it turns out, that was good enough, and I could have done a lot better on the outreach there. I think the same things here on the financing side, which is that I think with enough time, I could do a lot better of a job and what I really need to focus on. See, I'm, I'm using this now to, to kind of give myself therapy. Uh, <laughs> That's what podcasts are good for. I, <laughs> I just need to focus on getting to the next step. And I can't be too religious about how I get there and just recognize that this is one of the things that you do when, when you have time constraints. So, yeah. Uh, I, should, I should point out a few things, too, just to make sure that people listening are clear about it. I mean, you know, for, for starters, we're talking about it. I, I like to talk about things that we can help make happen. In this case, you know, part of it is uh, you're, you'll be underway shortly after this podcast airs. You'll actually <laughs> be underway with it. And uh, people can go to the, your site. They can go to orbitalnyc.com and not only see the, the background on it, and what's going on, but you've made your, uh, there's a Google doc that has the whole syllabus and the syllabus is if, even if you don't attend the boot camp, which only a small number of people will do, you've got links to all the readings, you've got all the structure and whatever. And I'm curious if you're going to take the next step there. I mean, there's an incredible benefit, of course, of having everybody in front of you, but will you, have you thought about whether you'll record lectures, some or all of it, or put them on a YouTube or, or 
uh, Skillshare or some other kind of environment for sharing? And have you thought about the final talks people are going to give, the distribution of those? How much do you want to reach out of this physical space, which is a very intensive and you know collegial thing, and push it out to the rest of the internet? It's a great question. Um, you know, I think that one of my guiding principles is trying to not ever have to, to trying to minimize the amount of things I have to manage. Yeah. Um, so if I can get help in that regard where someone can come in and do a lot of those things for me, that might be something I'd consider. But, you know, the, the last thing you mentioned, I think, is the thing that I probably care about the most, which is how do you help people get the audiences that they deserve for the things that they're sharing? And you know, every single year that I teach at SVA, I'm blown away by what the students are able to do. I'm blown away by what they've been able to process. I really don't necessarily know if I think that I could do that if I were in their shoes. And, you know, that type of learning is kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to go after. And I think it's the only, you only get that through going through these experiences. And, um, I would love to try to find ways for the students to have a broader platform. So that might be something that I consider, you know, like I've thought about, you know, what if I created a way for people to audit the class? You know, is there some, you know, is there some amount of money they would pay in exchange of value so that they feel like they're getting something out of it so that where they can participate? Um, Well, there's your scholarships. People audit the class and the money they pay helps fund people to attend in person. Well, I I think that if by my estimates, I think that there are about 15 to 20 students who I'd like to get scholarships for at, yeah. at thirty seven fifty a pop that starts to get closer to like sixty seventy thousand dollars and I'm not sure if I would ha- I'm not sure if that many people out there want to audit the course but it's an interesting idea I, I don't know the demand this is what I, I think you're going to be I mean you, I know you weren't overwhelmed but you're uh, 62 people is a huge number of applications for a first time thing and for that short a period you look at the conferences out there XOXO I think got 1400 people willing to pay 500 bucks and fly to Portland and they can only accept 500. I mean, it wasn't a, it's not a course, but it has a similar orientation. And I think there's such a crying demand for this. And New York city is an expensive place. So people being able to negotiate, being able to spend this money on top of everything else they're doing. I think you got, it seems like a great response. I mean, I think if you were in a less expensive city, it's possible you would have gotten two or 300 responses to something like this. So I, I, I wonder, I, uh, as you test the water, I'll be curious because I get this question all the time is how do I get started down this path? And I say, wow, there's lots of different routes. And then my answer now is partly read a lot, listen to podcasts like this one, uh, and, uh <laughs> but watch a lot, a lot of YouTube videos of people going through really in depth about, uh, I mean, not just the XOXO talks, but just people going in depth about the road they hoed and the road they hoed rather and, uh, <laughs> how they, structured things to give themselves the opportunity to succeed without necessarily knowing if they would or not. And then how they followed the path once they found, you know, where the river was flowing, they were able to go with it. Seems to me there's a, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you had a hundred people who wanted to, to audit any given one of these um, when the time comes. Yeah. I, I think that there's, well, there's a couple of things. I think that a lot of the experience and a lot of the value that the students get is in the classroom and, and learning from each other. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's a little bit hard to replicate, you know, over the internet. You know, I could see teaching an audited course that was solely about the small assignments, but not about coaching people through the launch of their projects. Um, but I also... Satellite classrooms, you could have people form groups and pods in other cities too. That to me is a lot more interesting, mm-hmm. right? You know, and, and that's one of the reasons why the, the 
document's a, a, a Google Doc. It's it's so that people can just fork it and, and teach their own versions of the class. Like I, I would love nothing more than for that to happen uh, because it, it is it is about kind of creating community in a way, right? And it's community, creating community through a common struggle of trying to express yourself through these things that you want to make that don't fall into any sort of clean bucket and don't look like anything else that's out there. And and I think that is it needs to be done together right like a, one of the underlying themes of this is that it's really a myth that we do anything alone and i think it's through putting people through that experience that you start to appreciate that a bit and i i think there's a great message underlying what you're doing too is that it, this comes out at a lot of these sorts of events and uh, in books and like the whole like i think i hope this podcast is that it isn't that we don't want to make money we, you know, capitalism, I, I find capitalism an imperfect but relatively excellent system compared to the others that are out there. And so as a participant in it, money is, I guess, the proof that what you did shows that you can make the system work for you in some fashion, right? So <laughs> that's a long, <laughs> long-winded way of saying I don't think what your your mission isn't, uh, isn't anti – isn't adverse to people making a profit or – or specifically focused. And now there is a lot of here's how to make a product or do a Kickstarter or whatever that is very much focused on, okay, here's how to make a lot of money or here's how to make a good return or whatever. And and yours has a much broader mission in which profit is certainly be one of those. Like here's how you might be able to start a company and have a good living and provide a return for investors or for yourself. But you have so many other things included that it seems like your goal is to help people figure out how to be fulfilled. And if the fulfillment is that they get a 50% ROI, great. If the fulfillment is that they've created a new space in their community in which people participate and they foster civic engagement, then great. And and you have an ecumenicalism about the importance of all those different kinds of fulfillment that's often difficult to find in these environments. And I give you kudos for that. You know, yeah, you know, money's a weird thing. I... I've made lots of irrational decisions around what I do with money, and this is certainly one of them, right? Who who signs a two-year commercial lease in Manhattan and comes in not knowing what they're doing with it? And, you know, I've invested in, in a couple of small independent films, largely which – you know, and I'm not a millionaire, um, but it was largely it, it was largely because the budget was very small. I knew my friends needed to make the film, and I knew I was about to fly to New York City, where I was going to have a salary from a venture capital firm for two years. And they didn't have those things, and they went on to make these films. And then both films ended up premiering at South by Southwest, and which has been the biggest stage for them since, and that's had a huge impact on them, and. I think that I've had to, this is definitely a lot bigger than that, but I've had to come to peace with what money is. Hmm. And, and I think for me, I started to see money much more as kind of a, a, a proxy or a currency for uh, our time. And I think our time is our most valuable asset. And so money is just a way by which we gain access to, 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 to time in a way, right? Like, you know, for me, money is very much tied to rent <laughs> and more money means that I'm able to pay my rent and I'm able to be here longer. But it also, you know, having enough money to get this off the ground has enabled this to exist. And so I've become, uh, you know, and I, I have lots of other opinions about money too, that are a little bit less, uh, 
pragmatic and a little bit more emotionally based. But I, I've had to really focus on uh, trying to not let the emotional side of that get the best of me, if that makes any sense. It, it does. And I, I think you point out a key interesting part of what the 21st century might be about, which is, you know, they talk about the next billion, like the next billion people to come on the Internet, the, the rise in developing nations of uh, you know, information economies and so forth. And um, for in an information economy, in a developed world, time often equates – or money often equates to time. And for maybe 6 billion people, money is a result of dint of hard labor, right? And so one of the goals, the, the growth of human capital, the improvement of people's lives, maybe the transformation, I hope, is that fewer and fewer people on this planet – uh, that you ex- you wind up exchanging instead of it being labor, it's for time and it's for the value, the output of the brain instead of the body. And there'll always be a requirement for manual labor, but maybe, I mean, not to be super futuristic, but maybe the uh, improvement in robotics, which is happening at a terrifying <laughs> quick phase now and in other kinds of, of skills that the we, we wind up magnifying our physical abilities with technological tools and more and more people get to reap the benefit of that instead of toiling, you know, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a privilege to be able to make those types of decisions, you know, but, and then what I see though, is that if you really want to be self-directed, it's not just access to capital and access to time. It's, it's being able to break away from this mentality of, of kind of, you know, our, our entire educational system is really based in trying to create more factory workers because yeah. that's how because that's how our world you know operated. And as we move farther and farther away from that, it then gets harder for people to figure out well how do they direct their time and they and they have this dissonance in their head of wanting to do things that are beneficial society and and, and are more than about just the accumulation of wealth, but then they don't quite know how to express that. And I think that this kind of ties into that. And, you know, I guess if I were to have like an overarching thesis, it's, it's, you know, probably not necessarily about trying to make the world a better place or make this program about that. But it's more like if you can help unlock and enable individuals to express themselves more effectively through the things that they make, I think that these things will largely take care of themselves, or at least that's the best that one could really hope for. Um, Because we don't, you know, back to the point that I was making before, it's really... Uh, we really don't have control over a lot of things. And, you know, Twitter might be the best, most interesting thing, because I think that it's a purely commercial entity. And, um, you know, but if you were to say that you were going to go off and try to build a system to enable people to help overthrow dictatorships, um, or to, <laughs> like, that would be the most boring network on the planet. No one would want to be part of that. And in order to, for, for you to have something that facilitates a positive benefit, you still have to deal with the hate and the racism and the horrible stuff that is on the system. But it's, you know, it itself is neither good nor evil. It's, you know, it, it just is. And well, as we know, the internet is the most efficient system ever created for the mass distribution of cat pictures. <laughs> and yes. and, and that cats. is certainly from the point of view of the cats, it's been very, very effective. <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, I, I think, I think you're right. I think the idea is that this is a non-zero sum game and the more people you can get into games that are non-zero sum, the better everybody does. Yeah. And I hope so. That's a, so, well, I wish you luck. It, it, I think within moments of this airing, not moments, days of this airing, you'll have conducted your first session in this new project. And, and good luck, and I'll be looking forward to what the iterations are to come. And thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. 
You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com cool. slash new disruptors. It's good to have some. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.